as we've been going through Paul's epistle, his letter to the Romans. We have a bulky letter, in fact, the biggest letter of Paul. So we've taken quite a while getting through it. We're, we're not there yet, but we are approaching the end of chapter 11, which is the transition in the book into chapter 12, which is quite practical. And we get into practical issues and, and so on in and, and chapter 12 quite directly. But before we get there, I'm, I have to say I've been interested, to say the least, interested by Paul's use here at the end of chapter 11. So keep your finger in Isaiah, but flip over to, uh, to Romans as well. And at the end of chapter 11, just where we've been, we've been at the last couple of weeks here, verse, verses 25 and following, Paul says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. Now, where Paul appeals to the Isaiah 59 text and the conglomeration of others. A deliverer will come from Zion and banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins, which, by which he's referring to Israel. The, the Israel after the flesh that he talks about, he says, hey, I'm a minister to uh, the Gentiles, but I know that there are people after my own flesh, and he kind of details some of that at the beginning of chapter 9 as well, that his heart breaks for. He wants his countrymen to know the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants his, the people of his own flesh to, to know Christ. And it turns out that being a prophet, whether an apostolic prophet like Paul or a prophet like Isaiah, is kind of tough business. Think about that for a moment. What is the job of a prophet? but to speak the word of God to the people of God in particular, and speak the word of God maybe to the world, and that would be the case particularly with an apostle sent out by Jesus Christ. He's sent to preach. He's sent to give away all around the world, the Jew first, and also to the Greeks, the word of God. But the, the work of a prophet by itself is often tough and often thankless, even to the point where this, you know, it comes as a, a cliche or a truism that a prophet is never received in his own town. And you can think about why that might or might not be. But we have a tough-going reality, both for Paul here, as he writes this letter to the, to the church in Rome, but also as we look back at Isaiah. As Paul grabs on to this passage in Isaiah as, as what appears a basis for understanding the restoration of Israel, right, as the Gentiles get called and the Jews will be called in Christ as well, I want to consider what's going on in both these contexts and how hopeful both Paul and Isaiah are without reason on the ground to be hopeful. Right? Their hope is in God and the promises of God and the work of God, not in the works of men and what we're doing. It's because they look at those things and say, ooh, this isn't very good. Uh, we're not anywhere near as far along as we, as we should be. So first, Paul's concerned with his kinsmen. And secondly, Isaiah's concerned with his kinsmen. And finally, hope for all kids. There's all sorts of people, all families of people. Paul's concern is with his kinsmen all the way through this letter. He has concerns about the Jewish nation, his brothers according to the flesh, all the way from the beginning. He's contrasting Gentiles and Jews through the whole book. And if we come to chapter 9, if you're there and you flip back, you can see his, his heart is with his countrymen. Right? He's, his heart is breaking. He says he has continual sorrow and unceasing grief about the Jews who are unbelieving. His, his, his kinsmen according to the flesh. And um, that's, that's something on Paul's heart. That's something that is, is a burden on his heart for the, for the, the Israelites, his, his brothers according 
to the flesh. Now, Paul's personally tied in with them because they're his kin, in the same way that you might be personally tied in, as you should be, to your kin, to your family, to your neighbors, to the people that God's put in your life, in the ministry you have to bring them the good news of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Right? There should be a burden we have for our own kin and our own people, but Paul's is different than ours, at least in this sense. It's the same as ours in that his heart is, is, is open and he desires the salvation of them. The passion with which he desires that may leave us in the dust. Probably does most days. I don't think any of us are going to write all that often and all that truthfully that we wish we were cursed from Christ for the sake of our brethren according to the flesh. Right? But Paul does. Paul he says he tells the truth in Christ and is not lying uh, about his, his grief in this. So there's a personal issue, but it's not just personal, and it's not just, you know, he's got a whole lot of intensity uh, and desire in that. But Paul's desire for the salvation of Israel is specific to that nation of Israel, that covenant people of God. Your desire for your people, Brazilian, Irish, whatever you say, or just American, you know, America's the people too. It turns out we all say we're from somewhere else. You know, say, where are you from? So oh, I'm Scotch, Irish, and this and that. No, you're American, bro. Uh, it's American. So Americans always want to tell their personal story. America's people. Do you, does your heart break like Paul's for your country, your countrymen? And especially in the sense that we've received a, a, lot, a bill of goods from Christianity down the ages that we have squandered, right? that, that's running, you know, slipping through our fingers like sand. Does your heart break for your country? It should. And you should desire the salvation of your country, whatever country it is, that God would make his, make his, uh, his son known by his spirit. But what's different between our desire for the United States of America to know the, sal- the saving power of Christ and Paul's desire for Israel to know the saving power of Christ? Well, America is not a covenant nation with God. God didn't make covenant with George Washington, right? It's like Abraham, right? But God did make covenant with Abraham and made a nation out of him. And from that nation, or I should say to that nation, he gave his word, he gave his law, he gave his covenants, he gave them the worship. And from them comes Christ according to the flesh. Okay, so that's a special nation. How many other nations share that status? Zero. Not America, not Spain, not Ireland, nothing. Not even modern Israel, I wouldn't say. I told them there's some discussion there about what's going on in the 20th century, though we hope that that's in the purview of the salvation that God is showing. But there's one nation, the sons of Abraham, that God has made. And, and we see, in, even in the chapter we're looking at, the gifts and the calling of God can't be revoked. God made covenant with Abraham, and it's so. And it's still so, even to the point... Where Paul says, according to the gospel, they're your enemies, Christians, you Gentiles. They're your enemies so that you should be saved. And then as you get saved, Gentiles, that will provoke the Jews to jealousy, and they'll come back, and that's this kind of large plan that God has of saving the Jews and the Gentiles, and so all Israel will be saved. So Paul has a personal commitment. He loves these people. There is flesh. There is people. He wants them saved. But he also sees this covenantal commitment that God has promised to save them. God has made covenant with Israel and granted some are being punished because of hardness of heart, because they won't believe they've been cut out of the olive tree. But does God have the power to graft them in again? Is it not their very own olive tree and not ours? We who are outsiders brought in and all of that. Just a reminder that Paul is personally committed to Israel being redeemed and coming back in. But he's also covenantally connected the same way, and that's important for us to realize what's going on, because 
we should, getting back to this, desire the salvation of our own country, our own kinsfolk, and so on. And God's put you right where you are. He's given you the relationships that he's given you, so to minister through you, Christian, that you would be his hands and feet. And again, with our kind of tighter relationships that we have day by day, uh, sometimes preaching is not quite so easy, uh, or, or even desirable, but living is. But living is. And so God's called us to be faithful in our words, faithful in our proclamation, but faithful in our lives as well, that he might save our kinsfolk. That he might save our family. That he may, might save uh, that uncle or cousin or son or parent that's off the reservation, that's left Jesus Christ and has decided that there's something else in this world that's more important uh, than the Lord Jesus Christ, than the Son of God, than the salvation and eternal life we have in him, which, of course, is crazy. There's nothing more important than that. That is the most important thing. That's what we come together to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. So since this passage deals with, uh, that is to say in Romans, the destiny of Israel, and we said, well, aren't we Israel, Pastor? Don't we get in there? And he says, yeah, we get, we get grafted in in Christ. Right? We're, we're sons of Abraham because we're brought into Christ Jesus. And we're, we're grafted into the, to the, to the olive tree. We partake of the sap and of the, you know, the nourishment of the olive tree. But that olive tree is the covenant God made with Abraham and the people that have come from that. And so we want to see, um, well, we want to see our people come and, and know the Lord Jesus Christ. But we also need to be praying for, and just like Paul was, and seeking that Israel should come. And if, if the question be asked, and it has been asked to me, and my answer was, I don't know. Uh, but if the question be asked, well, who are they? Who are these Jews that, that are planning to be saved? My answer is, God knows. God knows who they are. He knows exactly who they are. You might ask a similar sort of question with the resurrection of the body. It's like, well, you know, after a handful of years of being out in the ground, our bodies decompose. And they're, you know, whatever, get mixed back in, and, you know, people bake bread and eat us, and whatever else goes on, right? Uh, you, you know, we kind of work through the cycle. And you say, well, listen, how is, how's God going to raise the body? He knows. The same way he spoke the worlds into existence, he'll raise the bodies. It's not a challenge for him. The same way he knows the elect from all eternity, he knows the Jews he's going to save. He knows them. We don't know them, but we'll get to know them. We'll get to know them in eternity. We'll get to know them even as they come into the kingdom. But this is God's work, and so the question might be asked, well, who's a Jew? Who, who belongs to Israel? I don't care. That's, that's for God to worry about. But we do know that Paul's kinsmen, according to the flesh, are what's in view. Right? There's, a, there's a Jewishness there that doesn't get lost in the church, right? but really it's kind of the glory of the church. Uh, the, the, the traditions and covenants and commandments and so on that are, that are passed down. So as we seek then, like Paul, with his concern for his kinsmen, we should have a concern for ours as well. We should be seeking the Lord. We should be worshiping well, something we kind of talked about in education hour, the focus on worship, coming before the Lord week by week, Lord's day by Lord's day, to be conformed to the image of Christ whom we worship. We also need to live well. Coming forth from that worship and serving the God, we just worship, being conformed to the image of his Son. And finally, praying increasingly, continuing to pray, not losing heart. Don't lose heart in your prayers. Continue to seek the Lord for the salvation and life of those in your lives. Don't give up. Keep praying like that really irritating lady with the judge. Just keep praying and keep praying. And even the godless judge says, enough, I'll give you what you want. How much more? How much more, Christian, will your loving Heavenly Father give you what you ask for? Keep asking. Keep after him in humble prayer. That's Paul's concern with his kinsmen. 
kind of bringing it into our context. What about Isaiah? You keep quoting from Isaiah, and I, I spent, I'll tell you, a lot of time later this week reading through Isaiah, even large tracts of Isaiah, trying to get a hold of, of, of what Paul's doing here. And it's, it's kind of difficult, but I want to grab on to Isaiah 58 that uh, Elder Fruget read, and then 59 that I read, and then into 60, and looking forward in 61, to kind of see how this kind of section holds together and what Paul's maybe grabbing onto, what he's, what he's got for us there. So Isaiah's ministry was a long ministry. Uh, if you read uh, ch- chapter 1, verse 1, you see that uh, there are four kings of Judah he served under, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. For probably about 60 years, probably over 60 years, Isaiah is a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah. And not only is he just a prophet over all those years, and you can think actually from, you know, Uzziah was a good king and Hezekiah was a good king. Ahaz, yeah, not so much. Uh, and Jotham, not so much either, right? So he's, he knows good kings, he knows bad kings, he knows the wickedness of the people and repentance and so on. Um, in eighty-seven twenty-two. Sorry, in 722 B.C., going back before Christ, 722 uh, before Christ, the Assyrians came and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, carried off and the, the people captive, and there's the southern kingdom of Judah going, oh, wow, uh, our brothers in the north were just invaded, and, uh, and, and they're gone. And, of course, Assyria is threatening to do just the same thing to the southern kingdom as well, and Isaiah is ministering through all of that. Uh, so he's, he has, a, he has a, not only a long ministry, but a storied history uh, to his ministry there as well. Look back at Isaiah 58, just the first couple verses, the first five verses. And this is the ministry to, right, this is God telling Isaiah what he's going to do right here. Cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to the people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sin. That's why it's hard to be a prophet. Nobody wants to hear their transgression or their sin. Or at least the unfaithful don't. But again, the, uh, the stripes of a friend are a blessing and the kisses of an enemy death. Um, when, when a prophet stands before you and tells you your sin, you can get angry. You can say, oh, you'll get it. You can do that kind of stuff. Or you can just receive from the Lord. Uh, so open your ears as the prophet speaks. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. They're very, they're very uh, religious Right? These, these, the, the, these folks from Judah, the southern kingdom, they're very religious. They're, they're doing things outwardly that look good. They seek me daily. They delight to know my ways as if, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. He's saying they're seeking me in certain ways, but they're not seeking me fundamentally. Right? Do you get that? This is something we all struggle with. Right? We, have, we go through the motions. We have things we do toward God, but our hearts aren't in it. We honor the Lord with our lips but our hearts are far from him, where God says, no, worship me with your heart. I want you, all of you, including your lips, including your words, but all of you as well. Not so for Israel here, they're not doing that. They ask me of righteous judgments, but they delight to draw near to God. And then they say, why have we fasted and you do not see it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not take, you take no knowledge of it? And they are afflicting themselves and going through the, the fasting and putting on the ashes and all these externals. And they wonder why God doesn't hear them. Behold, in the day of your, fir- of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Okay, so we have, just easy enough, we have, just taking fasting as one example, we have a whole lot of externals that are being laid out there and, and kind of done just right. But the heart of the people isn't there. 
they don't really care about fasting. In fact, when they fast, when they afflict themselves, and of course affliction is supposed to be like you know, not eating and drinking and, and kind of feeling bad and recognizing that, that, and as we go on, that other people are stuck living this way and it's, an, it's, it's, a, it's imperative upon the believers to serve those and minister to those people instead of learning that from the fast, what they're doing is fighting and being selfish and doing their own thing. Right? They're taking the, a fast day and just turning it into their own thing. They got the externals. It looks good out here. It looks like we're doing the right things, but our hearts are far from them in these religious exercises. And of course, the next thing at the end of the chapter is similar, God calling to repentance on the Sabbath. Sure, you know how to stop your work once a week. Good. But do you call the Sabbath a delight, Israel? Is it something that you rejoice in and, the, and you honor? You kind of cease from doing your own stuff. You can serve the Lord on that day and call it a delight. And, but, but God gives these wonderful little promises that if you do that, I'll feed you with the heritage of Jacob. You'll ride high on the land. He'll give blessings to his people if they would repent. If instead of putting a yoke upon their workers, they would take the yoke off of their workers. Right? We see that all through this chapter 59 as well, or 58 as well. Chapter 59 has more denunciations. And it goes on through there. We've read it. I won't read it again. But the people of God aren't in a good spot. Okay, you think even with the attacks of the northern kingdom and the, the, the you know, international uh, uh, enemy, Assyria, coming in, you think that might draw them near the Lord. They might kind of circle the wagon and say, okay, Lord, we don't, want, we don't want the destruction that happened to our brothers up in the north to happen to us. But that's not what happens. Right? Repentance comes and faith comes when God gives it. Repentance and faith come when God gives them. And here we have a situation where God's calling them to that. The prophet's speaking to them of their transgressions. Uh, and and there, are, there are promises that if you would repent, these are the things I'll do. But repentance is something given by the Lord. So we get this whole chapter 59. It's man, a lot of judgment uh, upon the nation of Israel. And then we get down finally to verse, well, when God's looking around for a, a say, who's going to stand in the gap? Who's the one who's going to be the intercessor? And he says, there is none. And so God has to provide his own. Sound familiar? Right. He sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in Jesus Christ should never perish, but have everlasting life. And so we get that here at the end of, of chapter 59. I'll start reading at verse 18. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath for his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of Yahweh from the west and, and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of Yahweh dries. And then here's the money. A Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares Yahweh. As for me, this is my covenant with them. My spirit that is upon you and the words I have put in your mouth will not depart from you or your children or your children's children. So there's a constant testimony here of, of the word of God that's being promised to the prophet or to the nation. Uh, but based upon this Redeemer, right, the one who will come, verse 20, and a Redeemer will come to Zion. Now notice the Redeemer is coming to Zion here in the text in Isaiah. If you look back at Romans, the Redeemer is coming from Zion. Um, thing, and the text isn't quite this text either. So it's hard to know just from that. It's not like Paul just simply quoted this verse and pulled it into Romans. He didn't. He like kind of grabbed it, modified it, and stuck other things in it and stuck it in Romans, which makes it hard to kind of figure out what he's doing, which accounts for all my reading in Isaiah trying to figure out what he's doing. Right? What, what, is, what is Isaiah doing here where Paul can grab this text and say, look, this is a proof text that Israel will be saved. That's what he's doing with it, right? That's the proof text that Paul's using in Romans chapter 11. Israel will be saved, just as it is written. Okay, this is, this is the text here, that a Redeemer will come to Zion. 
and to those in Jacob, uh, and, and redeem, redeem them from transgression. And then in well, just the beginning here of chapter 60, we can see this great light then. As, as we talk about the Redeemer, then, then comes the light. Then comes the redemption. Right there is the prophet talks about the sins of the people, publishes them promises, but the promises come to pass in the redemption of the Messiah, his redemption. Arise, shine, for your light has come, for the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But Yahweh will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen to you. And the nations shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Now listen, there's an issue here of Israel standing forth as a light, and what? The kings of the world seeing in there, coming and bringing their, their, their service and their wealth. Verse 5, Then you will see and be radiant. Your heart will thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned toward you. That's the Gentiles. And the wealth of the nations shall come to you. Okay, well, there's, there's a hopeful kind of reality of Israel right there. Uh, look down maybe at verses uh, 10 through 13. Foreigners shall build up your walls, is chapter 60, 10 through 13. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and the king shall minister to you. Okay, so foreigners are going to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, other nations will minister to, to Israel. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. That sounds familiar of Romans 11 also. Your gates shall be opened continually. Day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings, uh, uh, with their kings led in procession. For the nation and the kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations, nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the palace, the place of my sanctuary, and I will make a place for, uh, of my feet glorious. And so on. So this, this image here, you can, hopefully you can see, and it's not an uncommon one in the, in the prophets, is that when God gives this life to his people, the nations will come. They'll bring their riches. They'll bring their leaders will come. They'll see what God's doing, and they'll want that by his work in them. And, of course, all that hangs on the Messiah, the very work of Christ himself, which we see at the beginning of chapter 61. You should recognize this for sure. The Spirit of the Lord, Yahweh, is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, uh, that he may be glorified. And then the ancient ruins. They shall build up the ancient ruins, and they shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. So we have this picture here of God moving on his people by Messiah, such that not only did they receive him and they arrested him, he proclaims to them freedom and from captivity, but that they begin to rebuild what formerly was. Okay, they rebuild these ruins and so on. Now, I'll kind of put that into the New Testament context and the hope for Israel that Paul's giving us in Romans chapter 11, saying, okay, Israel's been hardened right now so that you Gentiles should come in. And there's us kind of maybe bringing our glory into Jerusalem or into Israel. But how much more, when the Holy Spirit works in Israel and draws them en masse to be his, how much more will that energize the nations? How much more will that be like life from the dead? 
And we can see the same kind of dimension, these same dynamics at play here in the prophet Isaiah as well. Isaiah's concerns for Israel and his concerns are plenty. Right? He knows what they're up to. He knows they have this religious hypocrisy, that this guise of holiness that they like to present. But under that, their hearts are far from God. Their lips speak the words of God, but their hearts are far from Him. He knows that's what's going on. The hope for Israel, for, for Isaiah's kinsmen, is in Christ. It's in Messiah. It's in the one to come, by whom God will bring the light to them and open their hearts. So it's all about Messiah. From the Gentile ministry of Paul in the first century, as he's going around preaching Christ, hoping to provoke some Jews uh, by jealousy to come in, all the way back to the ministry of Isaiah. It's all about Messiah. The Messiah is the centerpiece of this redemption of God and of the faith of God's people. And that brings us to hope for all kins. Okay, so we have Paul's concern with his kinsmen, Isaiah's concern with his kinsmen, uh, you know, 700 so odd years earlier before Paul. But what about hope for all kins, hope for all peoples, hope for all kindreds, tribes, tongues, and nations? At the very beginning of Isaiah, you kind of like flip back there to chapter 2, you'll see that along with Abraham, the nations have always been in view with the ministry here even in Isaiah. It's never been about God just ministering to Israel for the sake of Israel. God ministered to Israel for the sake of the nations, for the sake of the world, that the world should come and know. Check out chapter 2 here, the beginning of it. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days... That the, mountain, uh, that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains. That is, the greatest place of worship, the, 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 the apex of worship on earth. And shall be lifted up above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. And the many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem, and so on. So we have this, this, the same call of the word of God going out, and the nations coming in. Right? The nations coming in to join Israel. The nations have been in view from the very beginning. All the way from Abraham, this great, you know, going back to Paul and Romans, this great work of covenant God made with Abraham that has, by God's mercies, persisted through these many generations. All of that is so that the whole world should be saved. Right, that God's plans are much bigger than Israel, but to include all the nations coming as well. And of course that comes not before Jesus, but it comes with Jesus. Jesus is the one that brings us into this new phase we call the New Covenant, where all the Gentiles scattered around the earth, lost in their idolatry, utterly and completely lost in their idolatry, the light should shine on them. That the light of Israel, which is to say Messiah, should shine on these Gentiles, and that they should come as well. I'll read a passage from Acts chapter 17, part of a, part of a sermon, highlighting for us this new covenant, this, this new call then to all the Gentiles, and you are them. Right? We're, we're the Gentiles. Right? We're these far-off nations that God has brought near. And it's taken 20 centuries for us to get here for us, right, from the work of Christ. So thinking of all that, but Acts chapter 17, just a couple verses, starting at 26. This is Paul up to the Areopagus in Greece, in, in Athens. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Okay, we have a doctrine of creation in Adam, given right there as Paul's preaching the gospel here. 
having determined, this is God, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's not actually far from each one of us. An amazing statement by Paul here, as far as the, what God, how God set up the nations through the course of time. They would grope around and try to seek God, and that they would even find him as God gives the light for them uh, to be able to find him. Yet this is not actually far from each one of us. God is near to each of us. In him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that divine being, that divine being is like silver or gold or stone or an image formed by the art or imagination of man. Well, there's a message for you in the ancient world because all the gods were that way. All the gods are made as images. And we might say, well, that's not the reality of God, but that statue is the interaction with the God and understood that way where God's not that way. As Paul saying, all the ways you idolaters are worshiping your gods, God's not that way. He's not served with human hands. The, the, the temples don't matter. He doesn't need to eat, uh, and so on and so on, the, the things that the people would be thinking. Um, rather, he says, the times of ignorance, that's the idolatry of the Gentiles. They're ignorant. They didn't know the God of the Bible. They suppressed him and so on. There's certainly through natural revelation they know him. But God revealed himself specifically to Israel, not to all the nations. So the times of ignorance for all the nations then, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Okay? Those times are over. We've moved out of those ages where God kind of overlooked the ignorance of the Gentiles to the point where now the gospel is being published to every nation under heaven. All the peoples of the world were called in Christ Jesus to come into this inheritance that is indeed Abraham's inheritance. This very repentance that Paul calls the Gentiles to is the same repentance he calls Israel to. To turn away from the idols, to turn away from their own idols of their heart and whatever else, and turn to the true and living God through Jesus Christ, the only one in whom we have salvation. And, as Paul continues, the one by whom... God will judge you, your family, this church, and the whole world. Listen to what he says. Because he has fixed the time. That is to say, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Okay, so the call comes to us. Just the same as the call went to... Israel in Paul's time into the Gentiles and went to Israel back in Isaiah's time because he cared for his people and ministered God. The, the, the same call goes out today. Turn from the idols of your heart. Turn from wickedness. Turn from the sins that easily ensnare you to the one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other, there is no name given under heaven by which men must be saved except Jesus, the Christ of God. And that is the message. That's the message to Israel. That's the message to all the nations to assemble in the one Jesus, the one Christ and it's not based upon Israel being susceptible to this kind of thing. They're not. They're hard-hearted. They always have been. It's only because of God's grace in them that there's even a remnant of salvation there, and certainly by God's grace in them among the Gentiles that were flooding into this thing and have been for centuries. This is God's work. It's his salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. Now, as I mentioned last week, it seems impossible that Israel, en masse, as a nation, as a people group in the world, should come to Christ. That they should no longer be Jews, but be Christians. Be Jewish Christians. Seems like an impossibility. 
What about your kin? What about your folks? What about your kids or your uncles or your aunties or your neighbors, the folks in your life that seems like, nope, this guy is, this guy is sure gone. He's sure hard of heart. He's sure unbelieving. There's no way to get through to that. And, if, and the truth is, you're right. There is no way to get through to that save the power of God at work in them. But God uses you. God uses your words. God uses your attitudes. God uses the way you live your life. And God uses your prayers. So worship well. Christian, live well. And pray increasingly for these people in our lives, our kinsfolk, the folks that need Jesus Christ, that don't know him, that we have him to offer. And don't try to mastermind how to figure out how to get them saved. You don't get them saved. You just are worshiping well living well, and praying often for them. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who saves, and he saves to the uttermost those who believe in him. So as Paul is concerned for his people, as Isaiah is concerned for his people, we should be concerned for our people and reach out and bring them into the people, the people of God, the sons of Abraham and Christ Jesus, the living church of Jesus Christ. And may we serve him well together and be a witness for him in this world and this time. Amen.